0: In the Footsteps of Shackleton, written and read by Chris Manches, part one of a moving experience. If you are, like me, a baby boomer, then you grew up with the exploits, daring do and sacrifices of men like Scott and Shackleton. At an early age, I realized that my innate curiosity about everything would only be satisfied by traveling. When I was at school, I'd given up two subjects which are now my favorites history and geography, in favour of such fascinating subjects as Latin and physics. Now it was time to learn from the University of Life. For obvious budgetary reasons, I started to first explore my own country, South Africa, which offers so much, particularly the wilderness areas. On my first real international expedition, I was entrusted by the tour operator with leading a trip to South America, which would encompass the Inca civilization, which I knew something about as I just played one of the principals in Peter Schaffer's play The Royal Hunt of the Sun, which outlined the conquistadors and the invasion of the Inca Empire. It then moved to the Amazon and on to the Galapagos Islands, which were at least wilderness areas that I could identify with. On the trip, was Joe the daughter of an eminent British general and war hero, John Oswald. Some years before, she'd left the family home in Hampshire on a retired London-to-Brighton bus and travelled with many adventures to Australia and then overland across Africa to Johannesburg. She should really have run the trip, not me. We hooked up. Shortly afterwards, as baby boomers, we decided that we should get to Antarctica by hook or by crook. The Chilean embassy then announced that they had fly-in trips from Punta Arenas on the southern tip of Chile to King George Island an Antarctic Island. We were in. We got a group together and planned to visit the White Continent. We had a farewell party on the Friday night, three days before leaving, where one of our mutual friends inquired, Why don't you ask Joe to marry you? My reply was that I had asked her, but as she'd been married before, she was gunshy. Ask again. So I did, and she said yes. Then followed a rather frenetic weekend where we arranged not only the legalities in South Africa, but also that we would be married by radio, by a priest from Santiago in Chile. We were slated as the first couple to be married in Antarctica. On the appointed day, we left for Chile, and the first part of the trip passed as planned. As we were about to leave for Antarctica, we got the disastrous news. The weather in Antarctica is too good. The previous flight down damaged its undercarriage in the slush, and all flights have been suspended. The rest of the trip passed uneventfully, and we returned home rather crestfallen. We then eloped and got married in a private game reserve with roaring lions as the witnesses. This travel setback only strengthened our reserve to get to the Great White Continent. Saving furiously, we then booked passage a year later on a society expedition's trip to Antarctica on the little red ship, the Explorer, previously owned by Linblad, and since sunk. We set off for one of the adventures of a lifetime. A wealth of experiences followed. Whales breaching, penguins squawking, seal snoring, and historic sites visited on the Antarctic Peninsula. On the way down to the peninsula from the Falklands, Las Malvinas, we stopped at Seal Island to offload expedition members from the USA NOAA organization who were doing summer research. Their leader, John Bengtson, asked for volunteers to help unload zodiacs on Seal Island. I volunteered. I volunteered little realising that this would entail the best part of 80 tonnes of gear. He travels heavy, dryly commented one of the scientists staying on board with us. Anyway, at one point, I was the only one standing on the beach when a fully laden zodiac appeared. The driver yelled in a somewhat strangulated tone, Grab the painter! He saw that I was only wearing wellies, not waders. I had to comply, not knowing if there were things like computers in the payload and not wishing to wreck the research. That was the first time that I ever stood waist-deep in the Antarctic Ocean. This can lead to chilblains in the most unexpected places. We got the gear ashore, and I returned to the ship to dry out. The one real adventure that we had was on Deception Island. We'd landed by Zodiac to see a million-strong Chinstrap Penguin colony when the wind came up. Back to the boats was the expedition leader's command. With British reserve... Don't forget I was married to an eminent general's daughter, although I'm 100% Afrikaner with a family history that goes back 350 years in South Africa. We waited for the last Zodiac. The Zodiac driver's command, when I yelled, go, sprint to the Zodiac and get aboard, was obeyed to the letter. Then, with the typical cussedness of an outboard motor, the damn thing wouldn't start. The predictable big wave came, and a fellow traveller with us got washed aboard, while we were all reasonably soaked. All out was Julio's command. He set off back to the mothership in a partly submerged zodiac, leaving us on the beach. The fellow, whom I shall call Herbie to protect the incompetent, then sat on the beach and commented to all and sundry, I'm going to die, to which his wife replied, Herbie, don't leave me. Joe, who isn't very patient with incompetence, got him up on his feet, and we then dragged him to the lee of some rocks. Here she removed his boots and wrung out his socks while his wife wrung her hands. His socks and boots were replaced, and taking an arm each, we headed back up to the Penguin Rookery, a step at a time, where there was a path down to a more secluded beach, which would be easier for us to be rescued from. His wife saw the opening and haired up the path, while Herbie, now showing signs of recovery, called plaintively after her in his turn, Don't leave me! My late father, who knew me well, had once given me a hip flask as a gift, the most useful gift I think I was ever given. So after several applications of Scotland's finest, we returned to the mothership with tales to tell. On the way back, we encountered the fearsome Drake Passage on Christmas Eve. On board with us were the Maxim family, charming New Yorkers where the father played in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Either the daughter and I decided to create something special for Christmas Eve. So the new version of The Twelve Days of Christmas was created... Twelve zodiacs sinking, eleven skuas robbing, ten ships are rocking, nine whales spouting, eight seals are hauling, seven penguins mating, six glasses carving, five macaronis, four leopard seals, three cormorants, two minke whales, and a snow petrel in a pear tree. We were hooked on Antarctica. We immediately started saving for another Antarctic trip. Different from the first, where we visited the Antarctic Peninsula, we were now heading on a full on Russian icebreaker, the Kapitan Khalebnikov, for the Ross Ice Shelf and the real historical areas. This part is known as the Far Side, but has nothing to do with Gary Larsen. The first adventure was a weather one. As we approached the mainland a storm warning was announced, as was a Mayday call from the French resupply vessel L'Astrolabe, and as we were the closest vessel, we were asked to render assistance. So having escaped the storm and were in the lee of the coast, we now put about and headed north into the gale. Now I will entrust you with an overload of information. I'm not big on pyjamas. Anyway, having managed earlier to get up onto the bridge, where the inclinometer indicated a roll of 40 degrees from the vertical either way, we had headed for our bunks. In the early hours, a particularly good roll had ejected me from my bunk to the deck, and I now headed rapidly towards the cabin door sustaining carpet burns to my naked right buttock. Now, these doors have a hatch at the base in case an icebreaker hits something more solid than frozen water and bends the door frames. The cabin occupants can still escape. I had visions of bursting through and appearing in the companionway covered in confusion and not much more. Just as I reached the door, the roll reversed. So, sustaining further carpet burns to my left buttock, I returned to the base of my bunk and a highly amused Joe. At dawn, we discovered that the French ship wasn't actually in trouble, but that a distress signal instrument had been washed overboard and in contact with water it sent out the SOS. Somewhat shaken and stirred, we returned to the mainland. The rest of the trip was fascinating in that we visited particularly the historical sites. Imagine walking into Scott's Hut and to find lying on the dissecting table the Emperor Penguin, which was the subject of Apsley Cherry Garrard's book, The Worst Journey in the World. In fact, visiting any of these huts is eerie. You feel as though one of the great explorers will burst through the door at any moment demanding a mug of hot tea. We actually had two living links with history on board with us. The one was Alf Howard, an 86-year-old veteran of the nineteen twenty-nine, nineteen thirty-one Sir Douglas Mawson Banzari expedition, who dryly commented on seeing the hut on the coast in which he had overwintered. Never thought I'd see that thing again. Mawson had named the camp the home of the blizzard, not knowing that it was situated in a wind channel from the ice cap. And John Moyes, whose uncle, Morton Moyes, had been a captain on one of Shackleton's voyages. There were two further highlights on the trip. When we reached Terranova Bay, we helicoptered ashore to the Taylor Dry Valleys, the first civilian visitors to the strange area which are devoid of snow and ice owing to the wind. Here there are also lakes in which you find primitive life forms, One of our party also found some old cans from one of the great expeditions. In the afternoon, after we returned to the ship, we ventured out onto the pack ice to which we were moored. This was the pitch for the international cricket test match. We had lots of Australians and New Zealanders, some Brits, and I was the South African team. It didn't take long to realize that the ball doesn't bounce on snow, so anything short demanded a short sprint and a swing for six. I wore my dinner jacket that I'd specially taken along to blend in with the penguins. Huge hilarity in a great party afterwards, and my only chance of South African colours. Incidentally, I took a South African flag to plant and claim sovereignty all over the place to annoy those without a sense of humour. Finally, we landed at Bluff in New Zealand and headed across that excellent country for our flight back home. Our interest had now become more specialized and we now booked on a trip to the sub-Antarctic islands to see and photograph more penguin species in their home habitats. So we joined the first trip organized by Rodney Russ. This was on the Academic Shokalski. This had been a spy ship deployed in the Arctic during the Cold War and still bristled with electronic antennae. This was much less of an adventure than the full-on Antarctic trips apart from two incidents. The first involved a Russian crew member who hadn't quite got the hang of helping passengers board from a ship to a bobbing zodiac on the boisterous ocean waves, and ended up in the sea with the passenger's camera. The other concerned Joe and myself. We discovered that we had been allocated a cabin with two bunks, one above the other. Gallantly, I offered to take the top one. One night, during some fairly active seas, my bunk tore loose. It swung down and connected with Joe, as I was dropped some two metres to the deck. I lay there gasping for breath, while Joe lay stunned in her bunk. In the morning, I will never forget the visibly upset Russian crewman deputed to fix my bunk, repeating over and over again, "Catastrophe, catastrophe." I was able to add to my collection of penguins seen in the wild 28 of 29 possibles. The last, the Humboldt, is off the coast of Chile and not too difficult to see maybe next time. More recently, Joe and I decided to part company. My first reaction was to once again head for Antarctica. My particular hero and role model in my visits to 112 countries on all seven continents has been Sir Ernest Shackleton. A trip now became available that took in landings on South Georgia Island. This is an island that will forever be associated with Shackleton for two reasons. Firstly, on his disastrous Endeavour expedition, when the ship was caught in the ice and sunk, he left a majority of the men in relative safety on Elephant Island and headed out across a thousand miles of stormy ocean back to South Georgia for help. He and five companions on the open boat that James cared made it to the island's south coast. Here he left three companions while he, Worsley and Crean, crossed the mountainous spine of the island to Stromness and help. He immediately arranged for the rescue of the three men on the south of the island, and then the balance on Elephant Island. He didn't lose a single man. His final expedition was once again to Antarctica. When his ship, the Quest, sailed into Gretfiken Harbour on south Georgia, he suffered a massive heart attack and died. Lady Shackleton was contacted, and her response was incredible. His heart was always in Antarctica. Bury him there. So I joined the Professor Maltanowski the sister ship to the academic shokalsky here i quickly teamed up with a very eccentric american anesthetist of italian descent giovanni the first part of the trip south georgia passed without undue incident and i was able to pour a libation from my trusty hip flask onto the final resting place of sir ernest shackleton we then set sail for the antarctic mainland It was the same area that I had traversed on my first visit 20 years before, and despite the current dispute on global warming, let me say that we spent three days dodging icebergs when we had seen only two big ones on the first trip. Obviously, the weather is different year to year, but this change during the same period down to literally a week or two was vast. We reached Elephant Island but couldn't land because the waves were running high. The captain promised that we would land the next morning on Penguin Island to stretch our legs. Penguin Island has a small volcanic cone about 900 feet high to walk up in the morning I was halfway up it when the ship's doctor caught up with me and suggested a return to the beach and the ship as the wind was freshening by the time I reached the beach some 12 or 14 minutes later it was howling at 120 kilometers an hour hurricane strength with no chance to get back to the ship so there we were 28 people on the beach the same incidentally as it had been left on Elephant Island only a short way away on the Shackleton Expedition. To cut a long story short, we were stranded for 12 hours on the beach, where I led some community singing of everything I could think of. We then built a shelter by gathering large rocks and placing them in a circle. While in search of suitable rocks, I found the wind so strong it simply blew me over, and I am built on generous lines. We then pulled the motor off the Zodiac, upended it, and dragged it over to the shelter for a roof. I thought the wind would blow us north of the Tropic of Capricorn, but no such luck. We crawled underneath, and with two people on my lap, passed another eight hours. Finally, the expedition leader announced that the wind and sea had subsided, and we would be heading back to the ship after twenty hours on the beach. Shortly afterwards, they came to me and asked if I would like to go. I am definitely not a hero, but I insisted that the oldest and coldest be sent back first. I would never live with myself if somebody had expired. A short while later, they asked me the same question, and on being given the same answer, I was told, looking at your grey hair, you probably are the next oldest. The fact that I am from Africa and my blood is thin meant that I had been shivering for the last eight hours, so that answered the other part of the equation. I staggered down to the zodiac, which had its stern to the beach. I sat on the gunwale and was about to swing my legs in when a young fellow traveller completely lost it and leapt onto the gunwale, preventing me from getting my legs in. I've got to get back to the ship, she demanded. So do we all, I retorted, but we're not going anywhere unless I can get my legs in. This pointless conversation continued for a bit, until a large wave arrived and washed me aboard. I was now cold and wet. Once aboard the main ship, a fellow traveller, who'd been with the British Antarctic Survey, removed my gloves, felt my hands and said, you're okay. no frostbite. Then it did the same with my feet. When asked whether I wanted anything, I replied, a large container of black coffee with space. Once again, it was time to deploy my faithful hip flask and then sleep for eight hours. The following day, we sailed for Deception Island, the scene of my first encounter with the vagaries of Antarctic weather. This island is in fact a volcanic caldera, a crater that has broken through to form a horseshoe shape. I approached the expedition leader. ''I want to swim there, please,'' was my request. Volcanic activity at Telefon Bay at the far side of the caldera was alleged to keep the sea warmish, and on my first visit swimming had not been possible. ''Have you forgotten yesterday?'' was her retort. ''Not at all,'' I replied, and then told her about Herbie and his wife. She immediately got on the tannoy and announced, ''Chris has completely lost his marbles and wants to swim at Telefon Bay. Are there any other lunatics on board?'' The next morning, six of us sped ashore with swimming costumes under our parkas, plastic waterproof pants and wellies. With some alacrity, we disembarked, disrobed and sprinted back into the sea, which was warmish-ish. There we lay, like six beached seals, mostly submerged at the edge of the sea. Uh, We didn't stay long. The result? I can't wait to get back. Thank you for downloading this recording. Copies of this and other recordings are available at greatguides.org. This talk is copyright and all rights are reserved. Recorded in Johannesburg in 2010.